If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn to uh, the book of Proverbs chapter 14 again. And uh, today we're going to take another section of verses. I decided that when we got into um, these chapters here, there's so much information in it that uh, I kind of, every week, kind of just kind of block them out and take a uh, four or five verses, three or four, four verses, whatever kind of sets with a new thought or a new idea, and uh, kind of take it out and lay it out one section at a time. But at the same time, we want to always go back and put the whole thing together. So we'll have a little recap to, so you can get it in your Bible the way that you need to and completely understand it. But you remember that uh, last week we, uh, we learned four great truths out of the passage that we looked at last week. We looked at our ability to either devise evil or to devise good. And we talked about how that most people would just think that the word devise or to plot or to plan is always used in a bad connotation. But we learned last week out of Proverbs that's not true. In fact, last night uh, it was very evident and obvious that uh, a lot of plotting was going on and the planning was going on in volleyball. And that doesn't mean to win the game. There was a host of visitors there last night, and you guys were so gracious and, and really uh, inviting them and, and then taking them over to Jason's Deli. It's things like that that really build um, what a church needs to build. You know, you, you know when, you, when you look at the nation of Israel, we've taught about, talked about this many, many times. You can always tell when uh, a church has divisions in it or has some problems. There will always be the core central people, and then there will always be the mixed multitude. Uh, you'll be able to see where the, the core of the church is always here, and the mixed multitude is always over here. And you can always see when Christians, if you're paying attention, when Christians start to get out of fellowship with God, or they get some issue that they got in their world, they'll start pulling away from everything, and just, you know, and um, uh, somebody said one time, and I'm far from being a sheep herder, but uh, they talked about the fact that when you herd sheep or when you raise sheep, you'll find that sheep always like to stick together. They always like to be in a bunch. And I thought that probably true because every time I ever saw them, they're all hanging out together, you know. And, uh, but he said, you can always tell when you've got a sick sheep. And I asked him why, and he says, because sick sheep always separate themselves from the rest of the sheep. And I thought that was, that was so interesting. And of course, that's exactly uh, what you begin to see when you come through the book of Proverbs and see so many things. So we learned about the ability to devise evil, to hurt somebody, or to devise good, to really help somebody. And uh, everything that we do here uh, is, the, is to that end, to try to help somebody get uh, what they need to get. We saw the second thing, the working to learn uh, the Word of God, which the Bible lays out as the true riches. I told the people in people ministry yesterday when we were talking about some things, there's, the Bible recognizes two works for a Christian. The Bible says in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, that when you want to learn the Word of God, it takes a workman who needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. The first work in our life is to do a work to learn the Word of God. It's not going to come easy. Uh, many people have this grandiose idea that they want to learn the Bible right up to the point that they see what it takes to really learn the Bible. And uh, they don't go any farther. The second work is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, which is the work of the ministry. Taking what you learn and applying it for what God has called you to do. The third thing we looked at was getting a crown of knowledge now 
in this life through the Word of God that in time will lead to an everlasting crown of righteousness at the judgment seat of Christ. And then I think probably one of the greatest truths that we unearthed last week was the aspect of delivering souls. How that Proverbs chapter 14 and that verse there really talked about that he that's wise delivereth souls. And we talked about the only true miracle in the church age today is the miracle of the new birth. How that when you win someone to Christ, you're actually delivering them into the family of God and into the kingdom of God. And with that, last week, we want to now begin to look at the next section of verses, and this will be verses 25, uh, 20, excuse me, 26, 27, 28, and 29. And it, verse 26 says this, The fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children shall have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. In the multitude of people is the king's honor, but in the want of people is the destruction of the prince. He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. Rob, would you ask God's blessing on the time and the word of God this morning for us for coming down here all the way from Lincoln, and it's good to have the Lincoln crew here. Lead us to the throne of grace this morning. Amen. Now let's look at verse 26, the first, uh, uh, at least the first part of this verse. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. Now we have been the last couple of weeks talk, talking much about this crown of knowledge. Um, the wisdom that comes out of it when you learn the Bible and you really labor to get the word of God down. And now today we're going to add to that the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord. And we want to come away this morning understanding that, the importance of it, and then also defining it. And uh, you find that phrase throughout the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7. You don't go seven verses in the first chapter of Proverbs till it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And that's really where you start to grasp the things of the Bible. The knowledge that you get about God, about the things of God. Then in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Once you get knowledge, as you keep pursuing that, uh, it leads you to wisdom, the ability to really see things and not only have the Bible, but be able to use the Bible. Uh, wisdom com comes from Bible knowledge, but Bible knowledge applied. And then it goes on to say in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is to part from evil. Then it says in Proverbs 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now that's a good combination. A lot of these, you'll see how they form the very things that we teach here and we talk about here. The first one says the fear of the Lord, uh, the fear of the Lord is, is to depart uh, from evil. That needs to be the goal of everybody who, when you get saved, leave the world behind, leave the things behind that <clears throat> so easily mess us all up. But how do you do that? And you know and I know that there's been people that we've worked with, people you meet in your life. All my ministry, I've found people and helped, tried to help people and dealt with people who could just never get past what was going on in their life. Maybe it's drugs, maybe it's alcohol, maybe, whatever it is. And I've told you many, many times, and this is where these two principles go together, 
You'll never, you'll never depart from evil. You'll never get what's wrong out of your life until you first see it from God's standpoint and hate it as much as he does. And those two principles are absolutely incredible in forming up that concept. He says in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27, that the fear of the Lord prolongeth days. Today, we're in chapter 14, and we find here where he says in 1426, the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. Then he says in verse 27, the very next verse, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. In Proverbs 15:33, it says the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. In Proverbs 19:23, it says the fear of the Lord tendeth to life. Now, tendeth to life in two aspects. For an unsaved person who hears the Word of God, responds to the Word of God, it tends to eternal life in a spiritual sense, salvation. Once a person becomes saved and they start to take the instruction of the Lord, understand the great complexity of the fear of the Lord and all of these aspects, then it fits into their Christian life for the victorious Christian life in their walk with God. Now, the fear of the Lord, and people get so messed up when it comes to some of the terms in the Bible. Uh, The fear of the Lord is not the fact that I'm afraid of God or what he's going to do to me. There's actually God's people who go through their whole life just thinking God is waiting around the corner to give them some incurable disease or to kill their kids or to do some dastardly thing in their life. And they live there, and they're saved people, but they live their whole lives fearing God in the wrong sense. They don't see the relationship of their heavenly father uh, to them as God's child. And how that God is a good father to his children. And God is not out to get anybody that's his children. He's not out to hurt anybody. But understanding the concept of that he's not waiting around this corner or down here when you drive home. That he's waiting to do some dastardly thing to you, to your family. But rather the fear of the Lord is to understand who he is as an absolute eternal power. The awesomeness of God. And his ability to do all things. And to fear in the sense that he has given that power to you. When I talk about the fear of the Lord in my own life, it's not that I'm afraid that God is going to do something terrible to me. Because I know God is only going to do to me what I deserve. People always ask me, how am I doing? How are you doing today? I always answer is, a lot better than I deserve. And the fear of the Lord for me is not to fear God that he's going to come down and whack me. Because I know that even if he does come down and whack me, he's doing it for my good, not for my hurt. So I don't have to be afraid of that. My fear of the Lord, in a sense, is the fact that what God, what God, has, what God has given me, that awesome, tremendous responsibility to do what's right with the word of God and all of the things that he has given me. The fear of not being faithful to him who is always faithful to me. And the fear in the face of the judgment seat of Christ of someday I'm going to stand before God who came down and died on the cross, gave me a salvation, opened up the greatest book the world has ever seen, which is the mind of God, showed me everything in that that he had, that he thinks, that he knows, that he wants. He took everything out there that is filthy and godless, everything, and he showed you the examples of why you want to take this over this. 
And the great fear that I have is that I will take that responsibility and not be faithful with it. That's the fear. Last week we saw you can devise evil or you can devise good to help people. And as I said, last night was a great example of that. You realizing that we use volleyball and later on softball to get people in a close to the gospel. And I, I, I just watched last night, and I was so proud of, 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 of some of you guys who were doing the devotions. And I would watch you, and I would, I would get as close as I could, and I would hear you, and I'd watch how serious you were with it, how good you were, how you presented what you had. It wasn't like you were there thimble-fumbling around trying to find it. You, were, you, you had a strong confidence And it was so clear last night. And yet, you same people who did those devotions. And you know what? We could pick another whole round of people, which you probably will next week, who will be just as confident in what they were doing as you were. And even some of you ladies, when you teach devotions, there's a confidence there. But yet I look and remember the day so many of you came into this church. You weren't confident in anything. You didn't have the ability to do anything. Many of you were messed up on goofy things in the Bible that you didn't need to be messed up on. Many of you, you know, had, had got all kinds of weird ideas and everything, and you were in other places and other churches, and some of you had just came out of the world. And I watched you. I watched you come to the place where you, you began to follow a process of understanding their awesome responsibility. Some of you saw it, I think, the moment you got saved. Maybe you didn't understand it, but you certainly saw it. And now I watched Locke last night and again all next week and throughout today. I'll watch you guys out there doing what you do, opening up that Bible I'll watch some of your young kids that are out there passing out tracts and talking and witnessing to people. And when they are too young, honestly, I blows my mind when they're too young to actually do it, but you take them out with you while you're talking to somebody down there at that bus stop, two or three of them are over here praying for you. Strong confidence. Strong confidence. And we saw, we saw that you can devise evil. You can sit around and nitpick a church, nitpick anything you want, nitpick other Christians. Or you can devise good in helping people. And boy, last night was an incredible thing for me. I mean, when I stood out there and then going over to Jason's deli was just another aspect. I mean, I know I like to eat. I understand that. But to watch you take them in and and to sit with them and people coming over and talking. That's exactly, that's exactly what the ministry is. Now in our verse today, the Bible says that this fear of the Lord is a strong confidence. And I want to tell you something, that's the missing element in Christianity today. God's people with absolutely no confidence. We got a lot of God's people who know a lot of things about the Bible, but they don't know the Bible. And the only thing that's going to give you confidence, a strong confidence, it's not all the things about the Bible. It's knowing the Bible. It's being able to understand book by book, chapter by chapter. Being confident to give God everything in your life and to do the work that he's called you to do. Devising good for people. 
Again, all these principles will, will run together like last week and this week. Your whole life dedicated to the work that Christ began. And he said, I began a good work in you the day you got saved. And he wants to perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. And you know what? The problem is not God wanting to perform it. The problem is not God having the ability to perform it. The problem is God's people allowing him to perform it. Last week, we talked about being a first responder. When you make yourself available to God and you decide in your heart that you're going to be and do and you're going to pursue a confidence in the Word of God and you build it on the things that you learn and the things that you were taught. As Proverbs chapter 1 through 8 so clearly lays out the instructions of a father. God instructing you and instructing me. When you do that, it will bring two fundamental things into your life. And these two areas are, I'm going to say it again, are the missing elements in most of God's people's lives. The first thing that it will do is it will give you experience. I cannot tell you how vital getting good experience in your life is, how important it is. And experience to me is simply, are these glasses crooked on my face? (laughs) I'm looking at it, driving me nuts. (laughs) Yeah, see, this end is up a little bit. I don't know. I'm looking at everything cockeyed this morning, but but then again, maybe it isn't me. I just don't want to stand up here. I mean, I'll take them off and and fake this and just work my way through it through memory. I just don't want to stand up here like Barney Oglefield with my glasses crooked. So help me out here. You said it did. You better not be lying to me. Experience. Everything I do, everything I put into play, everything I, there they go, everything I encourage you to do, It's for you to gain experience in any given scenario. I cannot stand people, in the ministry anyhow, who fly by the seat of their pants. Who don't have any plan, who don't understand what they're trying to accomplish. Experience is one of the great things that comes from making yourself available and beginning to let God use you to touch other people's lives. And in time, when you get the experience, what comes from experience is a strong confidence, what we're talking about today. Now, a a, a current great example of this, and I'll just make reference to this one more time because so many of you have called me and talked to me about it. So many of you said the other Thursday night when a little gal came in who was the Church of Christ and, and uh, you came to me or called me and we talked, probably 20 or 30 of you, and you talked and expressed of how much you learned that night, of how, how we handled that scenario and that situation. And some of you, I, I got to tell you, I know, I, I watched the crowd. I was watching her watching you. Some of you, bless your hearts, you completely bought into her. And you know why you did? You felt sorry for her. You actually felt like she really had come to learn. But I understand that. But you know why? And and you held that right up till she sank her fangs in you. But I understand why you looked at it that way. 
Because you look at things that way when there's a lack of experience. And when you look and understand how the, how the whole thing lays out, experience. Experience teaches you what you're really dealing with. It's why it's so vital. Experience not only teaches you in any scenario when you're talking to her or anybody. Experience teaches you not just what to look for, but experiences will teach you what to listen for. In Genesis chapter 3, when the devil showed up, somebody asked a question Thursday night in Bible study. It was a great question how, how the devil uh, presented himself to Eve. And I told you then, you know, if, if the devil and Jesus Christ walked in that back door right now, and one came down this side and one came down that side and they stood right beside me, you would not be able to tell them apart. You think that the devil has horns, carries a pitchfork, has a red union suit with a tail with a cleft foot, and that you would be easy to recognize him. And Jesus would have a white robe, halo around his head, and you would be so easy to tell him apart. Yet the Bible says, in the context, that when the devil came to Eve, he transformed himself into an angel of light. The only way for Eve to tell which was which was not by how it looked, but by what they said. God had clearly told him, her and her husband, from his own mouth what those trees in the garden were for. She knew that. She didn't get it from a translation. She got it straight from the mouth of God. And when the devil showed up and presented himself as the angel of light, she was caught up in looking at him and not listening to what he was saying. Where experience teaches you what you're dealing with, a strong confidence teaches you how to deal with it. And of course, the key is never lose the control of the situation. That comes from confidence. I told you a couple of weeks ago, years ago, 20, 30 some years ago, once I got firmly set in the Bible, I read every book I could get my hands on. I read everything about anything because I wanted to learn. I wanted to know. And I did it for one reason, because whenever I talk to somebody, no matter who they are, I want to know where they're going, and I want to be waiting for them when they get there, and I want to know more about what they believe than they do. That's experience, and from that experience comes confidence. I must confess to you, when I first got saved right with God, I'm not sure what it was, but I am saved today. I think. I hope. I was so, so excited about what God had just done in my life. I was in a group of young people, much like many of you are. And I had just come out of the darkness and into the light, and I was so, so excited. And I knew nothing about my Bible. I knew nothing about anything about the Bible. 
But I had such a desire and such a passion and a burden. I'm like so many of you when you first get saved or you really get right with God and you, you're so impatient. You want to you get it all as quickly as you can. And you're so impatient for it. Never comes that way. We always every year at the Stark County Fair, thousands of people would come through the Midway and they had these long buildings where, you know, they pass out all the stores, rent a bin and they pass out for windows or doors or roofing or this, whatever, you know, and you walk down through and they give you free stuff, pencils, yardsticks, all that stuff. And we, that church there, would, Mel would always get a booth and we would staff it with people that would try to win people to Christ. And it was a stupid little thing that we would ask people if they wanted to take a questionnaire about religion. And it was one of those devised plans to try to get somebody saved. It was pretty stupid and pretty goofy as I look back on it, but it's where we were. And it had, it had eight or nine questions. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in organized religion? Do you believe in the devil? Do you believe this? You know? And then the last question was, if you die right now, do you know you'd go to heaven? It was a trick thing. And if they say no, then you ask them, would you like to know? And then we want them to Christ. Well, I had never won a person to Christ in my life. And I wanted to go be part of that, and I worked so hard. I got the Romans Road down. I got the Matthew Turnpike. I got everything laid out. I had it down, man. And I went into that thing there, and the first couple of people come down, didn't want to do it, but oh, I was so excited. And so this little guy came down, and I, I asked him if he'd like to take the survey. He said, sure. So I took him in, and, and uh, um, I, I come down the line. I asked him if he knew for sure we'd go to heaven. He said, no, I didn't. I said, would you like to know? He said, I sure would. And I won that guy to Christ. I, I was, I, no, not yet. You saved that. You, you, you don't want to do that just yet. But I thank you for that. I was so, I was so pumped. And I remember walking, I had to park way over, uh, three blocks over because of no parking there. And I remember, this is how stupid I was back. I remember walking over to my car. And I think I won three or four people to Christ that night. At least I hope I did. I hope I didn't win them. I hope the Lord got them. But I'm walking to my car. And this is my reasoning. This is a young Bob Alexander. Doesn't know anything about the Bible. So stupid he doesn't even suspect anything about the Bible. This is the, this is the guy back then, that you're listening to now, and I'm walking down, I even, I'm even embarrassed to tell you this. I'm walking down there in my exuberance. I say to myself, I don't have to learn the Bible. I'm just going to be a soul winner. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I just discovered something. I don't have to spend all that time learning all that stuff in the Bible. I'm just going to, boy, tonight was it. God showed me. All I'm going to do is fine-tune the Romans road. I'm going to be a soul winner. I, 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 and I was, I, was, I was proud of myself. I was happy. I saw it now in great light. Bob Alexander, the soul winner, a bus, just go around winning people to Christ. And you know, we all get goofy ideas like that when we're young Christians. And our balloon gets so big. But you know, I learned God's got a hat pin that'll bust any balloon we've come up with. <laughs> the very next night, I, I couldn't wait to get out of work. I went home, got ready, got my Bible, 
got all my stuff ready to go. Man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to notch my pistol with four or five more tonight, you know. And so I go out there, and I'm down on the runway, and they're coming down through there, and I'm talking to people, and I see this young guy coming up here, and I said, Sir, would you like to take a religious survey? I mean, I'm, I'm cocky about it. I'm in. I'm the greatest soul winner the world has ever seen. I'm well on my way. I don't need to learn the Bible. And he said, Yeah, I really would. Oh, got me another one. So I go over there, you know, we go ahead and have these little booths made up with curtains, you know, as you pull. We sit down and I started going down through there. And I got to the punchline question. I said, if you die today, do you know where you'd spend eternity? And he said, yeah. He said, I do. But he said, I have some questions about the Bible. Maybe you could help me. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Took me to Acts 2.38. Took me to John 3, 3, where it said, you have to be born of water. Took me to Romans 6. Took me over there where a little gal went the other night where you have to be baptized uh, in the, you know, uh, in, into Christ's death. For the next 35, 40 minutes, he beat me sentless. He kicked me up six ways from Sunday. I didn't have an answer for him. He just gutted me. He just nailed me. He just, he didn't shake my faith, but he made me mad at myself. And where the night before I walked back to my car on cloud nine, thinking that I had it all figured out, that we're never going to have to learn the Bible. And I was just going to be the great soul winner because I could just win people to Christ. That night when I walked back, I said to myself, God, that'll never happen to me again. I was so stupid and so foolish. And Lord, I'll tell you what. And from that point on, I understood and recognized the fact that I had to not only get experience, but I had to get a strong confidence. And I'll tell you what. I have spent the rest of my life doing two things. When I got firmly set in my faith, I got every book I could read on every subject that was out there, and I devoured it. And the second thing I did, I've been looking for that guy for 40 years. (laughs) The key is to never lose control of a situation. That's confidence. (coughs) Knowing what they believe better than they know it. That's confidence. And being able to take the experience to know where they're going before they get there and be waiting for them when they arrive. You know, in our physical world, talking about first responders, they're, they're intensely trained. Most of them are evaluated at least once a year, maybe twice a year. Their equipment is kept in pristine condition and is checked regularly. And in any given disaster, they will be the ones who are running into a burning building while everybody else is running out. I I think back of the tragedy of the World Trade Center in 9-11, and so many firemen and police officers, hundreds, were killed. And you know why they were killed? Simply because they were trained to go into that situation while ordinary people were trying to get out. 
incredibly brave men and women. And I've always thought about that and thought, you know, in a spiritual sense, everything we do here, everything I try to get across to you, everything that we try to, everything we try to put together, every plan behind it is to get you to that point in your life where you have a strong confidence and get the experience to be a first responder. Our people ministry. We started it three some years ago. And it's simply, it pulls all the other information that we get and puts it in. We started in Genesis and working our way through. And anybody could have got in it that wanted in. But it was to show everybody who wanted to learn. To get the experience. To get the material to build a strong confidence. Because people will have disasters in their lives today. Disastrous things will happen, spiritually speaking and physically speaking. Their house, their family, their lives, their relationships, their marriage will be on fire and headed for a disaster. And I don't want you to be like most of God's people. Well, most God's people are standing around while a house is going up in flames, wringing their hands and saying, why doesn't somebody do something? I want trained first responders that are experienced, strong, confident first responders that are running into the disaster, not running away from it. And I see you guys doing this all the time. I'll tell you, there's no greater blessing for me as a pastor than to watch you young men and you young ladies get better in the ministry and the word of God than I do. Many pastors are threatened to death by that. I think it ought to be the goal of every pastor to train every man and every woman that wants it to know the Bible better, to use the Bible better, to do better than he does. Now maybe you all won't get there, but brother, you ought to work to get there. We get this idea that the pastor is somebody that's unapproachable and nobody can ever get to the point where, hey, look, the same Bible that I'm giving you that I believe is the same one that you can have if you want it. And I see you guys, I see a level of men of you being able to make core decisions while you're working with people, while you're doing this and while you're, you're handling this scenario. I've watched some of you now Turn out what? 20, 30 of the best people that this church could ever have. Why? Because you gained experience and the confidence to be able to invest into somebody and have it pay off. And some of you are extremely good at it. Some God's people sit there this morning and they'll say, well, I want to be that. I want to do that. Well, you know what? You're the only one who decides whether you really make it or not. I read one time a story about Peter Appleman. Peter Appleman was in the Civil War. That was a big old lanky guy in the Southern Confederate Army, about six foot seven. I mean, big monster of a guy. And they're holed up and... The Yankees are down over there about, you know, 100 yards away. They're in their parapets. They're in their trenches. And old Peter Appleman, he heard his commanding officer talk about that they needed some prisoners. So after dark, he actually crawled out of the hole, crawled down through there, 
came over the thing and there was a union sentry walking back and forth. His hand was as big as a ham. And he clobbed that guy in the face and threw him over his shoulder, climbed over those sandbags and started back to his own lines. And the Yankees saw him and they started shooting at him. It woke up his guys and they started shooting at him. And he's coming up through there, dragging that Yankee, kicking and screaming. And he's getting him up there. And he finally crowned over there. And everybody was around him. And his commanding officer was there. And he threw that old Yankee down there. And he says, there's that there, Yankee. There's a whole bunch of them over there. You all could have had one if you wanted one. There's all kinds of people out there. There's all kinds of disasters. This world, this country is filled with millions of people with broken lives and broken marriages and everything is busted in their life. There's a whole bunch of them out there and you all could have one if you wanted one. And when you get experience and you get strong confidence, then there's a third thing that comes into effect and that is the aspect of teamwork. Working as a team. They know that there's no one man or one person who is the key to it all. But everybody is part of a team to get a certain job done. And it's the job of a first responder. They all see and have a single goal. And they all work together toward that goal, no matter if it's a job they do or in a spiritual sense, if it's a ministry that we do. I, I preached one time at a, at a church and I did a conference on leadership. And I had probably three or four, five hundred people every night and they wanted to learn the basic fundamentals of leadership. And so I was going through some things and I, I used the example of a first responder to show them and illustrate the concept of teamwork. And to illustrate my point, I said to them, let's pretend that we're all firemen and this church is our firehouse. And we're all going to have a job. You, pointing to one of those guys, you're going to drive the truck. You, you're going to be in charge of the hoses. You, you're going to take care of all the ladders. You are going to watch him. You are going to watch all of them. And I gave everybody a job. And then I said, okay, here we go. We're a firehouse. We're firemen. Let's make sure we all understand. And I went to the first guy. What's your job? Drive the truck. What's your job? I'm in charge of the ladder. What's your job? I'm in charge of the hoses. What's your job? Everybody repeated back to me exactly what I told them. And I looked at them and I said, you're all wrong. Your job isn't to drive the truck. Your job isn't to take care of the ladders. Your job is to do the hoses. Your job is to, your job is to put out fires. I don't care what your individual job is. I don't care what you're good at. We're a team. Amen. And our fundamental job is to reach the world for Christ no matter what you're good at. Amen. First responders. Teamwork. The concept of understanding the goal. A first responder in ministry will be three things. He'll have experience. He'll have strong confidence. And he'll have teamwork. 
He'll have the experience of working and dealing with people. He'll get added material, updated, like we did the seven pillars here just a while back. He'll have a strong confidence. He'll know the principles involved. He won't get sidetracked on goofy stuff that doesn't matter. And he works as a team. They work with others to accomplish the goal. Everything I do is to get those three things in your life. Some of you will get it, some of you won't. But it's not means that I'm not going to try to the best of my ability. Some people wonder why, you know, I put two or three people discipling somebody. When it only takes two. Well, in reality, it only takes one. But you don't teach team concept with just one. You teach it with more than one. We come up to Lincoln. We love coming up to Lincoln. In fact, I think the whole church is coming up next time. But honestly, I could just send one or two people up. I could just send a couple up. I could send two hot guys up that could really do it. I don't mean hot, good looking. Hot in the Bible. But it doesn't hurt if they're hot, hot. Especially some of you single gals up there. You're not marrying nobody. (laughs) Why? Because the excitement of 10, 12, 8, 9 people going up there, even when some of them don't do anything, gets infectious. And it gives people the desire to want to be like that guy or that girl doing that devotion. And you come back just like I did so many years ago. And you say, God, I'm going to learn how to do that. Teamwork. Teamwork comes from strong confidence. Strong confidence comes from experience. And it builds first responders. Look at the last part of verse 26. And his children shall have a place of refuge. Now, a couple of things here. and Historically, you want to get these notes in your Bible here. Jerusalem was the place of refuge for the nation of Israel, historically, the children of God. And because the nation of Israel, the leaders, lost all that God had done for them, that safe refuge under Sodom and David for 40 years each, 80 years total, Now Israel was turned to the most deadly, dangerous place on the face of the earth. From 606 B.C. right up to today, there's no refuge for God's people in the land that God intended to be their refuge. Now, inspirationally, it'll be the people you deliver into the family of God. The job of this church, any church really, And I know there's many facets to it. I understand that. But fundamentally, the job of this church is to be a spiritual haven for those who seek refuge from the world. It's to be a spiritual refuge for those who want to seek refuge from sin in their life. Sometimes they have to seek refuge from other churches because they get hurt. We talked about last week how the day that you got saved, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25, that you were delivered as a newborn baby. 
into the family of God. You were delivered. And if there's anybody who needs protection and refuge in a safe place, it's a baby, whether it's physical or whether it's spiritual. By the way, that verse last week, Proverbs eleven twenty five, he that is a faithful witness delivers souls. One of the greatest eye-opening verses that really explain why the only way to heaven is through a new birth. Do you know what your NIV says? Proverbs eleven twenty five. You know the NIV, nutty idiots version. Where your King James Bible says the true witness delivers souls, the NIV says a truthful witness saves lives. Is there anybody here thinking that you can get to heaven if somebody saves your life? The word deliver is gone. The word soul is gone. And now according to the great most modern translation that everybody on the planet earth in the religious world thinks is the greatest thing that's ever come along, it now completely takes out the deliverance of a new birth. It completely takes out the word souls. And now you get to heaven... By somebody saving your life. Now, do you have any idea why it says that? Of course you don't. You don't read. Or you don't read the right stuff. Just take your NIV sometime and look in the front of there in the preface. And while you're at it, compare the preference of that to the preference of your King James Bible. You say, my King James Bible doesn't have one. Then you got the wrong one because the only real King James will have it in. We don't have to pay for that. I'll just throw that in. But you go in and look at the board of men who worked on that board to put out the NIV, the religions involved, the churches involved, and you know what you have? You have the Anglican Church. You have the Christian Reformed Church. You have the Lutheran Church. You have the Methodist Church. You have the Presbyterian Church. And are you ready for this? You have the Church of Christ. Every one of those churches does not believe in a new spiritual birth. In John 3, 3, every one of them believes in baptism regeneration. So when those scholars came to that verse, they had to get the word deliver out and get the word souls out. Our church, this church, should be the safest place on earth for a baby Christian. You get fed here. We'll start you out with milk, discipleship one, basic little questions in Bible study. Come over to my house one-on-one. I say it every week. There's no dumb questions, no stupid question. Somebody says, well, that question's, that question's been asked 50 times. Then it probably needed to be. Somebody said to me one time, well, you know what, you've answered the same question on Bible study now six or seven times. And I said, yeah, and you still haven't got it. Amen. You get loved here. Amen. Nobody's going to hurt you here. Nobody's going to get jealous of you. Nobody's going to sandbag you. Nobody's going to put obstacles in front of you to keep from going where God wants you to go. You'll get loved here. You'll get cared for in this church. 
You'll get watched over. You'll get protected. You'll get nurtured here. But you'll get correction here. We take in hurting people. And sometimes God's people come into church and they're hurting. Sometimes they've came out of a life of sin that has left them destitute and they're hurting. Sometimes they've come from other churches where they've gotten beat up and they've gotten used and they've got abused and they're hurting. And honestly, sometimes they come in with self-inflicted wounds. But they're hurting. When I always think of a church, what a church should be, I always think of 1 Samuel chapter 22. Over there, the cave of Adullam. David is running from Saul. David's got his problems. And he's running from Saul and he hides in a cave. The cave of Adullam. And the Bible says that people hear where David's at and they all start to go where David is at. And he winds up with 400 of them. And he said, everyone that comes to him is distressed. Some of them are in debt. Some of them are discontented. And they're all hurting. You know, that's what a church ought to be. It ought to be a place where people can go, come who are, dis, who, are, who, are, who are hurting in things. Who are disillusioned with things. Who are in distress. Who are discontented. There was a time when the two safest places on earth, and they're both connected with birth, was one, a mother's womb, and two, was a God-honoring, Bible-believing church. Now today, nothing could be farther from the truth. Wombs are violated by the abortion of millions of babies every year, and the churches have become spiritual abortion clinics that destroy babies' Christians from ever maturing. And the proof of that is just go look in the mirror. I've known some of God's people, but in churches 10, 15, 20 years, they still don't understand how to lay the Bible out. They still don't understand anything about the books of the Bible. And yet, we will, we will pick the abortion clinic to pick it. But the dead churches that kill babies just as surely, spiritually as the other ones do physically, we think they're good. Now, what's wrong with us? In both cases, they do the same thing. They kill babies. One's spiritual, one's physical. Now look at verse 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. That's what a church ought to be. That's what our lives ought to be. The Christian life as a fountain of life. You know, back in 1513, a Spanish guy by the name of Ponce de Leon, good Roman Catholic, tramped all through the Florida swamps looking for the fable fountain of youth. He'd been told by his church there was a fountain that if you drank from, you'd live forever. <laughs> wrong church, wrong Bible, wrong dispensation. Roman Catholic Church never could get their doctrine straight. He, he tramped all through Florida looking for the fabled fountain of youth. 
That water that you drink from, that you live forever and stay young forever. Hey, there's a fountain filled with blood that's drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stain. Want to live forever? John chapter 4, the water of everlasting life that springs up in you and then should spring up in others from you. You're down there today and restart on the street. How many times somebody's come up to you and asked for a bottle of water? Proverbs chapter 25 verse 25 says, As cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. The cold water is the word of God. The thirsty soul is the dry and dusty old world that can never quench your thirst. The good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the far country, Matthew 21, 33, that water came from heaven. And when you get it, it takes you from the snares of death out of the darkness of this world into the light. Look at verse 28. And the multitude of people is the king's honor. But in the want of people is the destruction of the prince. Now from a historical standpoint, and you want to get your notes here on this, this will be Solomon, who was an honor to his people. Forty years in his kingdom of no wars and peace. And then Rehoboam, his son, the prince, who came along and brought the people into want and wound up destroying the nation. All because he wouldn't learn the lessons and take the instructions of his father. Now let's look at this for a moment in a practical application. There's a great lessons here that explain a lot of things. You know, as a Christian in life, The older you get, the more you should understand the things of life the way they really are. One of the things I look for in young men and young ladies, you'll find people who are trapped in the goofiness that they came in with for all of their lives. For whatever reason, they'll just never move off a dead center and ever get the experience or the wisdom or never get the confidence to really understand the Bible the way it is. And they are trapped in all of the garbage and the goofiness that means absolutely nothing. To the work of Jesus Christ. And I, I, I think that it's pretty clear. In life. The older you get. The more you should understand the things around you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13.11. He said when I was a child. I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man. I put away childish things. And part of this process of your spiritual growth, getting into that book, is you'll put away the goofy things of children and you'll grasp the concepts of a man of God. And the more you see and understand the cause and effect of things, why things happen the way they do. This is called wisdom and understanding in the Bible. And it makes it 
supposedly 60, 70, 80 years old, a wise man. Proverbs 16, 31 says, the hoary head is a crown of glory. Hoary is an old English word for white, gray head. Somebody been around for a while, the Bible says, should have learned some things from life. Now you can see this principle at work in the Bible-believing movement up through the 1950s, 60s, and the 70s. And understanding the history of the Bible-believing church in the early, mid, and 20th century is an incredible thing to grasp. Back in the day, when before most of you were even really born, other than some of you older folks, this country was, was stocked with great Baptist churches that preached the Word of God. Places like the Akron Baptist Temple under Dallas Billington ran 10,000 on Sunday. The Canton Baptist Temple that I'm from, Dr. Harold Henniger, Canton, Ohio. Mansfield Baptist Temple, Tommy Leatherwood, preached there many times. The Maslin Baptist Temple under Bruce Cummings, preached there many times. Temple Baptist Church in Detroit under Beecham Vick, probably ran six, 7,000 people. Landmark Baptist Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, under John Rawlings. The Kansas City Baptist Temple, back in the day, under Wendell Zimmerman. Hundreds of Baptist churches in Springfield, High Street, Cherry Street. In Detroit, Tom Malone's Baptist Church. In Cleveland, Ohio, Ray Thompson. They were across this country. And hundreds of these churches had come out of the Southern Baptist Convention. These churches were carved out of the rock by, and built on the preaching of a King James Bible. They were built by men who believed the book. Some of the greatest pastors the world has ever seen. And I want to tell you something. I'm speaking from experience. I heard them preach some of the greatest preaching you ever heard in your life. The comparison between what you get now and what you got back then is unbelievable. They were statesmen when it came to laying out the word of God. But my friend, today those churches are nothing but an empty shell. They're a mess. They're a complete breakdown of what they once were. And why is that? Because of the principle right here in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 28. You see, the men who founded those churches were good men, and they brought honor to the word of God. They labored through some of the toughest times in, in, in the 20th century, many of them through the Depression, through World War II, through all the ups and downs of the economy to build a work that would honor and glorify the Lord. I think of men like Dallas Billington, who came up from Kentucky, who didn't know anything, never been to Bible college, had a burden, went to Akron, Ohio, and started in a garage and built a church honoring God for 10,000 people. He wrote a book, <clears throat> probably one of the greatest books that was ever written in the world. <clears throat> and you probably couldn't find it anywhere today. And if you got it on eBay or found it on the book place, wherever you go, you'd probably pay 50 cents for it. It's worth $100 million. It's the life of a man who believed God for what he promised and built a work. And the name of the book is simply, God is Real by Dallas Billington. Greatest book as a young Christian I ever read. Dr. Harold Henniger, Wendell Zimmerman, all came out of J. Frank Norris's crowd. But when they passed off the scene, they all left their works to their sons. And just like Rehoboam ran Israel into the ground, these boys, each one of them, ran their churches into the ground. Why? 
because they never worked and sweated and worried and prayed and labored to build that work. Oh, Harold Henniger had five heart attacks during the time that he pastored that church. He was one of the most compassionate, one of the most godly, one of the most caring people. If you, you, he was everywhere where people were. He fretted over that church. He worried about that church. He had five heart attacks. But when he passed all and gave up the church, he gave it to his boy. And he just, all these guys just handed it to him. And those boys never understood the price that it took to build a church. Those boys never understood the twee tears and the sweat. They never understood the labor involved in building a church. In fact, there's 10, 10 key fundamentals of being a pastor. And if you don't understand them and apply them, you're going to fail. And they never had it. They never learned alongside their dad to learn anything. They went off to Bible college and then they came back to take over the church with an unbiblical, ungodly format to build a church after their dads had labored and sweated and built it on the Word of God. They tried to come back and build it on programs. And the proverb says, spiritually speaking, they brought the people to want and destroyed the work. Akron Baptist Temple, lucky to run 1,500. Canton Baptist Temple, 900. Had one church one time that was boasting we're still the great church that we used to be. We're running 3,000 people. And when you examined it and saw the lies behind it, they were running about 600 adults and all the rest of them were kids. They brought in on the bus ministry and those buses were going 100 miles round trip to bring kids into church just so they could boast that they were a great church. Temple Baptist up in Detroit, gone. Kansas City Baptist Temple, gone. And you see it all over the place. And you know what? You see it in our own country. I mean, this verse is absolutely one of the most informative verses to understand why things are the way they are. Hey, our country's leadership changed the moment a president came into office that did not go through World War II or Korea or Vietnam. The last one was George Bush Sr., who was a fighter pilot in World War II. Eisenhower, Truman, Kennedy, both the Bushes, Reagan, compare them to Nixon, Clinton, Johnson, and Obama. They do have no clue how to defend the nation because they never spent one day in a uniform defending this country. And they got the presidency handed it to them and never understood the price that has to be paid to keep a people free. You look at John McCain, one of the great heroes who flew A-4s in Vietnam, shot down over Vietnam, spent three or four years in a Viet Cong uh, prison camp, the Hanoi Hilton, tortured, beat up. He can't even walk straight today. He was tied up for hours with his hand behind his back, lifted up off the ground. His shoulders are not even straight. He can't even walk. But he understands how to defend his country. Then you got John Kerry. This is an example. John Kerry, Secretary of, of State, who also was in Vietnam, who turned against the war, came back, took his medals off, and threw them over the White House fence 
and denouncing the very war. Now, I don't always agree with war, and there's people that didn't like the Vietnam War, but let me just tell you something. It's not your choice or my choice to decide whether a war is moral or immoral. Romans 13 says you obey the government, and God holds the government accountable whether it was right or not. We've gotten a long way from that. Our country is now run by men who have no idea how to defend a nation. Just like Solomon brought honor to it, now the sons bring dishonor to it. And for the first time in our country, talk about not learning a lesson of history. For the first time in our country, and I don't care who wins. I showed you yesterday in people ministry why it does not matter if you got the greatest soul winning Bible believing Christian to be president next week. It ain't going to stop a thing. And I showed you yesterday why it wouldn't. Amen? Amen. Now here we are, election coming up, and this country is on the verge of putting a socialist in the White House. Let me define socialism for you. Communism. And we just spent, what, 50 years fighting the Cold War against communism, and now this country, what, 20 years, 30 years after, is seriously considering putting a socialist communist in the White House? <laughs> Golly, God needs to plow this thing under and put a bunch of buffalo on it. And where once this country was honored and feared as the greatest nation in the world, now we're laughed at and nobody fears us and nobody trusts us. And the people come to want. Boy, that book of God never misses it. Not one time in 6,000 years. Now look at verse 29. He that is slow to wrath is a great understanding. But he that is hasty in spirit exalts folly. Now this verse is an absolute gold mine. The hasty spirit here will be our emotions, not having control of them. Proverbs 25, 28, one of our great verses that we always allude to in dealing with people. He that hath no rule over his own spirit, that's his emotions, like a city broken down without walls. The person who is slow to wrath has rule over his emotions. He has knowledge. He has wisdom. He has perception. He has discernment. He has understanding. Understanding to not just see the problem, but understanding is to know why the problem exists in the first place and how to fix it. Understanding will always give you control over any situation. Here lies the great concept that we talk about, react versus respond. And yet the wrath here sometimes may be warranted. There's times when your wrath against somebody or something may be warranted. But you still move slowly till you get all the facts. Haste makes waste, my mama used to say. This great understanding will simply come through letting the principles, Bible principles, filter through your response. Again, in time, uh, you get faced with all the situations that you have to deal with, whether you're dealing with somebody whenever, because you have experience and a, con a strong confidence, you're able to have the understanding how to deal with it. yourself first and then with others. You simply stop and take pause and ask yourself, what is the principle in the Word of God behind this? 
What is the principle behind this issue that I should be looking at before and following before I open my mouth? And in time, once you do that, it becomes an automatic response. That's how you control your anger, your emotion, or whatever. The last part of the verse says, but he that is of a hasty spirit exalteth folly. Now, nothing could be more truer in life. How absolutely ridiculously stupid is that how you, we look when we have no rule of our own spirit. A dad gets angry, out of control, upset, usually about stupid stuff. So he puts his fist through the wall in a fit of anger. He kicks the door off the hinges. Kicks a hole in the door. He throws a lamp. Breaks a window. He screams. He yells. He cusses a blue streak. All in front of his wife, his kids. Oh, you are definitely deacon material. (laughs) All because you're out of fellowship. Which will always lead to being out of control. Of your spirit. Your emotions. A 40 year old. Throwing a temper tantrum of a two and three year old. My, my, what a leader of men you are. Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32, that he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. There's some rules for your spirit. Do you know that? It says right there. And he that ruleth his spirit. How do you rule it? Because in the Bible, there's some rules for your emotions. Proverbs 19.11 says, The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over transgression. You know what that one says? You pick your battles. There are times that you want to get in it, you don't get in it. Times you want to shoot your mouth off, you keep your mouth shut. You know why? Because discretion tells you how to pick your battles. Unchecked anger and wrath. That's really not the problem. The really the problem is a much deeper problem, always is. You know that. There's a great verse on controlling your anger, your spirit, and your emotions. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 32. It simply says this. On the spirit of the prophets, or subject to the prophets, you can control your emotions. You can control your emotions. You just have to use the principles and apply them in every given situation. And if I've learned any one thing in 40 years of working and dealing with people, boy, there's nothing ever truer that I ever told you than I'm about to tell you. God's people want to learn things about the Bible, but very few of them really want to learn the Bible. They'll say they do, but they really don't. Do you know why that is? I've seen it all my life in the ministry, over 40 years. I mean, I've seen people who will read every book that's out there. They'll read every article and every magazine that has to do with anything. Oh, they're, they're dialed into that internet. I get probably 30 or 40 emails a month with some of the goofiest stuff that Christians are into, that's your, and I enjoy them all. I don't have video games, so I just play these. <laughs> Somebody sent me last two weeks ago that the massacre at Sandy Hook, where all those kids were killed, really didn't happen. It was a government conspiracy. 
Somebody sent me an email one time about the World Trade Center when it got attacked, that it wasn't done. One theory was that George Bush did it. The other theory was that aliens did it. And a guy said, you're laughing, a guy sent me an internet, said, look at this, Bob, look at this. I opened it up, and it showed the burning, burning twin towers there, and if you zoomed in real close, it showed little aliens scaling around something. Somebody had put them in there. Man never walked on the moon. It was all a stage set down in the desert someplace. I get them all. And these people will read books, they'll read articles, they'll get on the internet, they're all into the end times, they know who the Antichrist is, everything's a government conspiracy, a world conspiracy. I mean, they got, they, 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 it's incredible. I've seen them all my life. They will immerse themselves into these things. But they'll never, they'll never, they'll never structure themselves or discipline themselves to get into the Word of God. The difference is things about the Bible and things that are the Bible. You figured out yet why they don't? It's so easy. Figured out yet why? Because of all that other junk and stuff about the Bible, but it's not the Bible. It may be directly or indirectly connected. And you can get into that stuff and pretend you're really spiritual and you're really on a quest for knowledge and a quest for God. But I want to tell you that stuff. That stuff, here's the problem. That stuff will never change you. That stuff will never transform you. That stuff will inform you. Most of the time it misinforms you. There's only one thing that will change you. There's only one thing that will transform you. And deep down inside, God's people really don't want to change. They want to immerse themselves into things about the Bible. But when it comes to laying out the Word of God, getting into those books, getting into those chapters, getting into those verses... When you do that, that book gets inside of you. You can read all about the aliens on the Twin Towers and how the, and Obama's the Antichrist and all this and all that. And all that stuff is exciting. It will not change your life. That book changed your life. Oh, I know human nature. You kidding me? I'm human. I know how I am. I know you give me a long road or a short road. Bob Alexander going to take the short road. But when you get disciplined in your life, you know the short road leads to a short end. You go the long road. When you get into the Word of God and learn it above all else, the Bible's the only book that when you start to read it, it starts to read you. It will read you when you start to study it. It will start to study you. And you can't get into those books. You can't begin to come through there and look at those examples and look at those principles and look at what happened to this guy and get it down and put it in your Bible. Get it into your heart. Get it into your soul without the Holy Spirit of God saying, you need to change some things in your life too.
And it's just so easier because we don't want to really change. Oh, we talk about wanting to change. It just never happens. It just never happens. It will bring not only your own spirit into accountability, but in time it will bring your family, your marriage, your kids, your job, and every aspect of your life will now fall under a set of guidelines called the principles of the Word of God. And until you get there, you'll just keep playing the game. We saw it last week in Isaiah 29, 13 with the nation of Israel. God said to them, Wherefore the Lord said, Forasmuch as this people draw near to me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their, fear to, and, their, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. They give God lip service. Tell him what they think he wants to hear. Say what needs to be said, but inside. Never take the steps. The book of Proverbs is not only one of the greatest books in the Bible for us to read, but it probably because of its input and its value is the single greatest book that will read you and me. In Proverbs, you're firmly inside God's mind. The rest of the Bible, every aspect, every situation, every encounter, every emotion, everything you face will go back to one of these Proverbs and one of these principles. And in life, in every relationship, in every situation, in the good times, in the bad times, every issue found in the heart of man will be found in this book, the book of Proverbs. And when you open it pages and you read it, it begins to read you. And when you began to see this man here, my son, the Holy Spirit of God says, that's you. When it talks about a foolish man, it says, that's you. When it says the wise man, it'll say, that's you. And then you're faced with either changing who you are as a husband, changing who you are as a Christian, changing who you are. Or just going back to the stuff that appears that you're spiritual, but will never change you. When you open the pages of this old book, it reveals to you and me. That book discerns our thoughts and intents of our heart. Don't you hate that? We all like to keep our secrets. We all do. And most of the times, the secrets that we keep are from ourselves. We say to ourselves, don't tell anybody, but I'm really spiritual. When you get into that book, it discerns the thoughts and the intents of your heart. He'll not just say, we're going to spend some time in the Word of God today. He'll say, why are you in the book today? When you start to get antsy, he'll say, I'm saying this because he does this to me. You get into that book and you'll get in a hurry and you want to do something else, you know. And the Holy Spirit of God will say, what's your hurry? Oh, okay, go ahead. I got three other things I was going to tell you, but no, 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 I'm going to go. No, no, no. He discerns the thoughts and the intents of every one of our hearts. He looks right down inside. He knows whether you're real or I'm real or we're not. 